many people are tangled in their own trauma story. They can pass it from one generation to another. Not only the physical wounds, but the invisible wounds and scars that people are still struggling with. Thanks for tuning in to the Coffee with Kareem podcast. Don't forget to leave us a lovely review on iTunes and sponsor the show today at patreon.com. Links are in every description of every show. See people who go through traumatic experiences, they need three things. One, they need to have a voice. Welcome to another episode of Coffee with Kareem. I am your host, Kareem Sirajuddin. Today, I have Dr. Omar Rida calling in from Portland, Oregon. He is a psychiatrist. Dr. Omar, welcome to the show. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you for having me, Brother Kareem. My pleasure, sir. The honor is mine. So, Dr. Omar, please tell us a little bit more about the nature of your work in psychiatry and why you chose to go into this field. SubhanAllah, I was called into medicine at very early age. I was uh, six years old when I lost my sister. She was 14 and uh, she died of brain cancer. So the, the pain and suffering that I saw my parents go through, I decided to do something with the brain. So I thought I'm going to become a brain surgeon. And uh, I did really well in medical school. And then every time I go to the uh, operating room, I end up fainting. So I knew that uh, surgery was not my cup of tea. So Alhamdulillah, I uh, was very attracted to emergency medicine. So I uh, worked as an ER physician for about three years in Libya. Uh, and... Uh, Eventually, subhanAllah, I, I, even in the ER, I found that I was attracted to people's stories and I was, uh, you know, tending to their emotional needs. And I knew psychiatry was the true calling. But, uh, you know, there is lots of stigma in the Muslim community when it comes to being a psychiatrist. But alhamdulillah, when I came to the United States, I, uh, I found a position in the University of Tennessee in Memphis. I think that's a uh, best decision in my life. I, I love the field of uh, psychiatry. I think it's the most beautiful field of medicine because we mend broken hearts. SubhanAllah. So you knew from a young age that you were going to be a, um, a person that helps others. Now, why do you think that psychiatry, psychology, there's still, I mean, we know why there is a stigma amongst the Muslims, but do you think a part of that reason is because we are ignorant of, let's say, our own history and the Islamic civilizations? Because if you're a history you know, nerd and you read about Islamic history, you're going to see that this wasn't something that was, you know, it, it began with Freud, essentially. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there is lots of, uh, you know, uh, reference in the Quran, the Sunnah to emotional needs and Rasulullah was uh, highly encouraging of counseling. He was the best counselor, Rasulullah Every time he goes to the masjid and see people going through a rough time, he would sit down with them. And he is the one who said, if you ease your brothers or sisters suffering, then Allah will ease the suffering for you. And uh, you know, the Quran is very, very clear when Prophet you know, Yaqub, he lost his, his eyesight because he was grieving Yusuf, when Sayyidah Maryam, uh, she was going through lots of depression because uh, she was accused of, you know, having uh, Isa alayhi salam. And we know how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not reprimand her for having feelings. He actually gave her the remedy to um, go through that difficult time. He said, Kuli wa shrabi wa qarri'ayna. And then he said, فَإِمَّا تَرَيْنَ مِنَ الْبَشَرِ أَحَدًا فَقُولِ إِنِّي نَذَرْتُ لِلْرَحْمَنِ صَوْمًا فَلَنْ أُكَلِّمَ الْيَوْمَ إِنْسِيَةً When he said, uh, you, you have to uh, take care of yourself through... Eating healthy and uh, good hydration and Self-care. sleeping healthy. 
Yeah, self-care is very important in Islam. And we know how Sayyida Umm Musa, alayhi salam, when she lost her son, um, even though it was very brief, you know, departure, she asbaha fu'aduha farigan, basically. She, her heart was empty. Because when, when a parent loses their children, it's a very, very difficult thing. So Quran is very full of uh, these uh, very beautiful, you know, uh, encounters that the prophets and the righteous people had. So I think there is a loss of stigma because of the culture, not because of the religion. And unfortunately, we I, we are kind of enemies for what we don't know. Uh, psychiatry, so far, we don't have like X-ray that w will show that you are diagnosed with schizophrenia or bipolar or going through PTSD or ADHD. We don't have a specific and exact, you know, diagnostic testing. So we rely on, you know, criteria. You have to meet certain number of criteria to be given a certain diagnosis. But alhamdulillah, there is lots of development in the field of psychiatry and the field of uh, Islamic psychology that I'm very excited about. Absolutely. Myself as well. I mean, I knew I wanted to study psychology since I was 16 years old. I'm almost 40 now. And just to see where our community has come, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not a special guy, but I just remember being on that forefront at Masajid, you know, since I was 20 years old, you know, bringing concepts of psychology or mental health to the uh, my, my own Muslim community, right, that I grew up in and I taught at the schools, etc. Um, and then later, I started to discover this actual field of ilm and nafs and psychology, right? Like once I started to do more research in college and then, of course, grad school, it was like, wow, we have this tradition. It just, you know, is untapped in a lot of ways. And so it was a real big opening to, to just see that this tradition is so alive uh, in the, the text and the literature, but we're not quite living it, right, fully. But, you know, in your case, you had a very profound existential experience with the passing of your sister, Rahimahullah. And this was the kind of, I want to say alarm or something that made you go, you know, you probably asked a lot of questions then, right? And I'm wondering, how did you reconcile your faith in Allah and trust in Allah going through such a traumatic experience of losing a loved one and then use that charge to want to do something, you know, useful with it? What, what, what was your experience then, if you don't mind me, you know, tapping into that a little? Yeah, I mean, subhanAllah, uh, losing uh, my sister Zakia, may Allah, inshallah, bless her soul, was uh, one of uh, the very early memories, but I, I have many, many other, you know, traumatic experiences because, uh, you know, I, I ended up uh, leaving my home country of Libya, um, becoming an asylum seeker because I was placed on, on the blacklist of the regime because of my hum humanitarian and social activities. So living uh, in, you know, exile away from your parents was a very difficult experience. Going through, you know, discrimination and people looking at you as if you are the enemy, even though you are running from dark ideologies, now you are being looked as if you are, uh, you know, part of, you know, extremist groups or whatever it is. So and, uh, unfortunately, I mean, the timing was also, you know, very difficult for me when I came to the United States. I came in 2002. Was basically immediately after 911, and uh, America was going through lots of grief. And some people they show their grief through anger and through, you know, just dehumanizing the other and looking at people with suspicion. So Alhamdulillah, I mean, going through some of that, I decided to specialize in the field of disaster relief. 
So I was uh, responsible for the uh, disaster relief section in the University of Tennessee and actually for a uh, big part of the state of Tennessee. And then I, when I moved to Oregon, the same happened. I became very involved in, uh, you know, working with traumatized population. But then the Arab Spring happened. And, uh, you know, one of the countries was my own home city of Benghazi, Libya. Uh, ended up uh, losing loved ones, ended up uh, having very difficult conversations with my mom. She thought, uh, subhanAllah, the whole family will die for genocide. And mm. I had to struggle with nightmares and my own PTSD, thinking that uh, I'm losing my family. Alhamdulillah, yani, uh, most of them are still alive. I recently lost my mom. May Allah, inshallah, have mercy on her. Amen. But yani, all of these uh, experiences made me just realize that, subhanAllah, uh, Allah gave me a gift that I need to do zakat al-alim. I need to share, you know, my knowledge because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Not only your money, but also your time and your knowledge. And I'm very committed to th this project, alhamdulillah, which is working with the, the people who have no voice and try to speak up for them. SubhanAllah. Mani, mashallah. I mean, all the stuff you've been through, you know, I can't imagine carrying that pain and that weight and reconciling, making meaning of it, and also still using that, you know, energy, if you want to call it that, to still do something khair, right? Because I find that people who experience evil, you know, there's a variety of responses that can happen. And often it is, I'm going to become the evil, you know, it's almost like a twisted coping mechanism. Like if I was bullied or abused, I become the bully or the abuser or the racist because that's one of the ways I feel like it can't happen to me. I'm now the one who's doing. Uh, in other cases, the person could shut down and just kind of live in this dysfunction and all their complexes and try to kind of slide through life, right? And never really do anything about it, you know? Uh, and then there's the people who, you know, take that evil and recognize the meaning of it happening is not a personal slight from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but it's circumstantial and it's evil done by others, you know, because that's part of the package. People can choose to do whatever they want. You, me, and everyone around us, and sometimes we get the damage of that, right? And so, but then there's those people like yourself, sir, that take this experience and say, this is the lesson of life and this is how you are able to find your meaning and purpose to go bring the good to replace that evil because essentially evil is absence of good, right? And there's a variation of that good or that khair or that benefit or, or, you know, healing to, you know, oppose that harm or that danger or that evil that's happening. So all the stuff that you went through, you were still able to hold on to your identity, your purpose and your deen and your faith. I mean, I'm, I'm really humbled because just the things you've said, and I remember hearing you speaking at conferences about, your experiences in more detail and it's just like wow subhanallah and here you are you know still doing what you're doing and giving and helping those who've gone through it as well which perhaps is one of the benefits or wisdom of going through a specific type of trauma or evil is i understand and now i know how to help others cope and get through this too which is why evil perhaps is part of you know embedded in the uh, exam of the dunya perhaps what are your thoughts yeah subhanallah and you you say that very eloquently mashallah I mean, we know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, you know, So sometimes there is lots of good and something that seems evil or we don't, you know, appreciate the wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala until we actually go through an experience like this. But I mean, there are many, many 
people who decide rather than me being a victim, let me become a survivor. And others who will say, I will move from surviving to thriving and I become a healer. And I, you, 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 you say that very beautifully, mashallah. I mean, there are people who they live in a dysfunction because of their trauma story. And some of them, they repeat the cycle. That's why I called my project, Project Untangled. I wanted to break the cycle of dysfunction. Many people are tangled in their own trauma story. They can't pass it from one generation to another. But uh, yani, subhanAllah, if you look at uh, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Mulk, He said, uh, The reason sometimes of death or we being tested with uh, our, our own mortality is to do something very beautiful. Al-Ihsan is something that's very uh, elegant. So we, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is expecting us out of our grief to do something productive for the community, for the society. And with the shootings in our brothers and sisters in New Zealand, I see how much good is coming out of that very, very evil uh, terror you know, attack. But alhamdulillah, if, uh, if you see people who go through traumatic experiences, they need three things. One, they need to have a voice. So um, making sure that uh, their trauma story is acknowledged so they can make some kind of meaning out of their experience. The second thing, they need to um, try their best to make amends and maybe find forgiveness someday. And when I mean forgiveness, at least forgiving your own self. You don't carry that heavy weight of revenge or anger. Uh, if you are, mashallah, <clears throat> reaching maqam al-ihsan and uh, you can forgive your you know, abuser, that's something that needs lots of discipline and maybe, maybe you need to work uh, with the professionals about that. I don't know if you remember the, the war in Libya, there are people who fought for and against the regime and eventually ended up sitting on the same table because there are you know, wounds and there are trauma stories on both sides of the conflict. So people will uh, sit down together, they share their stories, they uh, grieve together and eventually they heal together. So finding uh, meaning and finding amends and eventually finding closure. SubhanAllah, when my mom died, Allah Yerhamha, in October 2016, I went through a very, very difficult time grieving because she was my best friend and because maybe I, I was away for many years in exile and stuff like that. Even though, alhamdulillah, I made a point, uh, you know, since the Arab Spring to try to go once a year and try to visit my parents. Yani, it took uh, my grief process maybe four months. And then, subhanAllah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave me closure through seeing her in a very beautiful dream. She came and uh, I was holding her, you know, leg. And uh, basically, I think it's just the interpretation of Jannah you know, paradise is under the feet of your moms. And uh, I was crying so, so hard, just, uh, you know, holding it to her because I knew she was leaving. And I heard somebody saying, uh, it says, it doesn't matter if you cry or don't cry, your mom, uh, her funeral was attended by the angels. And that oh gave, me, gave me full closure. And if, if you know my mom, she's a very simple woman. She's not like, uh, you know, famous or waliya min awliya Allah. But uh, subhanAllah, she always... Who knows? Yeah. She always uh, was very loving and caring to everybody who comes across her way. She was very, very barra, you know, taking care of her mom and dad, extremely, extremely too, like very, very, you know, far extremes, mashallah. But alhamdulillah, yani, when I found that closure, 
I decided to honor her memory and I'm, I'm doing Project Untangled in her memory and the memory of my sister and many, many people that uh, I lost across the, yeah, and I, I think that's something we can do as healers, if we can use that, our own experiences for good, we can bring lots of good to our communities, inshallah. I mean, I love I love these three steps that you gave us here. So we need three things to overcome trauma. And would this apply to lowercase t as well as uppercase t? Small, like small, like a mild trauma versus a major so, trauma, right? Like everyone has some trauma, but yeah. not everyone has severe trauma, like what you've gone through, for example, in Libya or the people who've gone through what they went through in those countries. Yeah, that's an amazing question because sometimes we see people who go through, quote unquote, uh, you know, small trauma, but they are going through a very difficult time. Sometimes we see children, for example, in Palestine or in Syria, uh, they're going through very protracted and long-term and very severe trauma, and they seem to be quite resilient. So it's not only the uh, magnitude of the trauma, there are many, many other factors that play into who becomes resilient, and maybe you have a support system, maybe you have your faith, maybe you have a strong foundation of self-esteem, Maybe you have role models around you. And uh, so there are many things that interplay, like bi biological aspects, psychological aspects, social and spiritual that uh, play into the healing process. But uh, yani, I think when it comes to large magnitude or big traumas, it would be nice, especially like uh, in the Muslim community, to have this as a communal affair. Rasulullah, whenever there is a big incident, he will go to the member and he will basically announce that uh, we are in, in this together. We are brothers and sisters and we live as uh, one ummah, truly one ummah, brotherhood and sisterhood. So when, you know, his uh, cousin died, he said, When somebody dies in the community, we go and take care of their families, take care of their children. Uh, Prophet Yusuf, he told his brother, uh, Benjamin, he said, Inni ana akhuka fala tabtais. I am your brother, so don't don't worry. I have your back. You, you have my back. You're not going to grieve. You're not going to stress out as long as we have each other. And this should be the attitude of the Muslim Ummah. Amin, Ya So let's, let me try to take you know some of the knowledge you've given us so far and, and try to get a case here. So let's say I take the three steps of what helps a person relieve themselves of trauma. Voice your story make meaning of it. You know, one of the things that I have found the story of Adam Islam is what's so fascinating is the first thing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did after he gave him ruh, right, which gave him life and awakened him, was alamahul asma. And he taught him meaning. He taught him this was this is the the technology of consciousness itself, right? Words, language, meaning. And without having meaning, there's no value or sense of uh, reality, awareness, existence itself is is that's the foundation of it, right? It's meaning, and this is why we need Allah because that centralizes how we make meaning in this dunya sphere. So, voicing and just naming your story, making meaning of it, is not. I mean, a lot of people might hear that and go, "How is that going to help me? Who I've been raped, or I've had this happen, or this happen?" Can you tell us more about why that's such a intrinsic axiom? of the human being, their healing, their capacity, and why naming something, giving it life through your words, like Adam was taught to do, and like we do constantly with objects and ideas and everything, has no meaning unless we give it meaning. So can you tell us a little bit more about your insight about that first step, 
and how it could help with even some of these severe cases, just voicing your story or sharing, making meaning of something like this. Yeah, subhanAllah. And I think uh, there is also a certain amount of uh, humility that's needed because uh, when Iblis was tested the same way Prophet Adam was tested, he became very proud and arrogant and he said, no, I'm not going to make meaning out of uh, that test. And he decided to rebel against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we know the outcome was very different for him. Um, but, uh, Yani, I can give you two examples. I mean, there are many, many more. But a few weeks ago, um, I have a 10-year-old who is a you know, very happy child. You know, So one day she was in very, very foul mood. She, she was giving me and her mom lots of attitude, which is not like her. So subhanAllah, you know, we wanted to basically send her to her room for time out. And that's an old technique that we um, discourage in psychology. Now we don't do time outs anymore. We actually bring the child for a time in. So it took me lots of discipline to say, okay, let us go to your room and uh, Baba will go with you. And we sat down on the floor and I said, you know, this is a safe house. We have an open door policy. We're going to share our feelings. We don't hide our feelings from one another, especially scary and big feelings. And she started crying. She said, uh, I had a nightmare last night that the whole family died in a, a flooding, you know. So subhanAllah, she didn't have the voice. She has something stuck in her throat, which is her trauma story. And the minute I gave her that safety to express her emotions, she immediately started to share and became the happy child that she is. So this is on a small magnitude, if you like. And So this is your daughter you're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. You and your wife seem like, you, you know, you have a lovely home, the safe house. You're, mashallah, you know, an expert in what you do. You have a wonderful heart. Alhamdulillah, Allah bless you and your family. So why do you think your daughter was resistant to voice it in the first place if this was an environment that already invites this? Oh, yeah, I mean, there is lots of, uh, it, it comes in different communities in a different, um, you know, manifestation. For example, people who come from Western, you know, cultures, usually they are about individualistic views. They they will keep their secret. They are not going to share their trauma story because they think I can do it on my own. So they want to go through this, you know, alone. And uh, I am I am tough enough to, you know, go through this tribulation. So that's one extreme of the spectrum. Another extreme, which is maybe the Eastern cultures, they seem to be uh, more about the community and the family. And uh, I do my decision uh, are based on the common good of the whole, you know, society around me. So sometimes they keep the secret or they don't share their trauma story because they don't want to be a burden. They, they, they say, I'm going to hide my suffering. I'm going to suffer in silence. I'm going to cry behind closed doors or cry myself to sleep because I don't want to be burdened on you. And, you know, we are working parents and they see how tired we are and they, the children are very, very sensitive. They just want validation and they want our unconditional love. And so sometimes they actually don't share, even though the house is safe enough for them. But uh, I think it's uh, an active process, an active investment. You have to maybe take your children on a date on a weekly basis and try to explore if there is something they haven't shared. And um, this is what I try to do. I mean, with the three daughters, alhamdulillah, I, I try my best to take them on individual dates. That's I love that. I, that's actually the one of the things that I 
uh, dreamed about doing myself. I have a, a son and, and two twin girls, but they're fraternal, so it's like two different kids, mashallah. So, but I used, I thought the same thing. I was like, you know, when I get when they get older, I have to have like, you know, I thought to myself, I already have the plan. I'm like, oh, every other Friday, I'll take, go out with my son, then one Friday with one daughter and the other, and alternate the rotation so no one feels like someone always goes first and last every month, right? So I even thought it like through to that extent, and I was, I feel like I just got a nice validation. And you're like, this is what I do, and it's very important because you give that personalized, you know, custom safety and security. For each child to be able to explore themselves with you without, you know, sometimes, oh, I don't want to say this in front of my brother or sister or what if they make fun of me for it later. So it makes them more resistant and closed off. So I love that technique and I'm really glad you brought that up. I think it's a great tip for everyone to consider for their own kids. Yeah, Zakallah khair. I mean, I think for the fathers, I mean, uh, some of, uh, you know, dads in different cultures, they don't necessarily focus on the emotional needs of their children, especially their daughters. They don't show lots of affection, uh, maybe because of cultural reasons. They don't actually, you know, hug or touch or kiss their children. And this is very unfortunate because Rasulullah I mean, when somebody saw him kissing his children, he said, I, I have 10 children. I never kissed any of them. And Rasulullah he said, what can I do for you if there is no mercy in your heart? And, and another thing, I mean, we... We know until his death, والسلام, he, every time he sees Sayyida Fatima, he will stand up and give her a kiss on the forehead and make her sit in his uh, in his spot because this is how much he loved her and he loved her mom. So showing affection to our children and to our spouses is something that's uh, very important and that there is nothing aib or haram in it. Uh, actually, it's, it's something that will bring lots of safety to the uh, family. And I, I rather my children come and knock on my door three in the morning to share a dream or a nightmare. Then they go and Google it or go to a chat room and talk to strangers. And subhanAllah, we know many children are uh, suffering in silence. I mean, uh, sometimes we do a play and art therapy with uh, the traumatized children. And I ask them what kind of animal maybe you like to be. And some of them say that I, I want to become a fish. And they say, okay, fish is very interesting. Why is that? And they say, because when I cry, nobody noticed. And subhanAllah, yeah. this is, sometimes we we underestimate how much uh, children are going through. But the Rasulullah was very, very attentive to that. I mean, whenever a young Sahaba come, he will ask about their emotions today. How, how are you feeling? He will give them validation and give them empowerment and they felt safe around him. They came and climbed on his shoulders. Right. I mean, my, my first book uh, is, is called Under the Shoulders of the Prophet, والسلام, because this is how much they loved him and they felt uh, valued and respected by him. And everybody, I think, knows the famous story of the young Sahabi who came to the masjid and say, Ya Rasulullah, I, I just have very strong emotions. I Give me permission to uh, commit the, the, the big sin of fornication. And, Rasulullah rather than reprimanding him or kicking him out of the masjid to become a masjid dropout, he, he said, Udnu, just just come closer. And he sat down with him until the, the young man felt very listened to. So we need to listen to our children and validate them and give them empowerment if we are to keep a healthy relationship and strong foundation, not only of Islamic knowledge, but also of self-esteem and safety. Yeah. Subhanallah, I mean, I feel like just all you're sharing and, you know, my own observations and this and, and, and some of the work I do, 
I almost feel like the axiom of reality, first and foremost, is this, you know, trust and security, right? We need that developmentally as human beings, you know, safety, predictability, then trust and security, then attachment and bonding. You know, that's how you go from survive to thrive, right? And subhanAllah, the first relationship is the one with Allah, right? That's the central one. And that is where you need iman. And what does iman mean? Security and trust, right? And this is exactly what we need as human beings with each other. So it's like everything you're saying can almost be reduced in essence to we're creating security and trust and that deepens the connection and the bonding and the attachment and the togetherness that requires our thriving as a species, as a community, as an ummah, as a family. Yeah. What are your thoughts about that, you know, perspective? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, m many people were saying what's the best way to actually work uh, with traumatized individuals or even with hateful groups like w what happened with the New Zealand masjid. And subhanAllah, many people, they used to say the first step towards, uh, you know, eradicating uh, ignorance is education. Just engage the other in the discussion so you don't alienate the alien. Uh, you, you will meet on common grounds and you meet in the middle and maybe humanize one another when you have a different perspective. But actually, more important than education, we found is connection, the human connection. You go and sit inside the masjid and see what these people are about or visit your Muslim neighbor or, you know, anybody that you don't feel comfortable with, you actually go and sit with them because the people who were, you know, disheveled in Mecca, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he said, وَلَا تَطْرُدِ الَّذِينَ يَدْعُونَ رَبَّهُمْ بِالْغَدَاتِ وَالْعَشِيِّ And he said, وَاصْبِرْ نَفْسَكَ مَا الَّذِينَ يَدْعُونَ رَبَّهُمْ بِالْغَدَاتِ وَالْعَشِيِّ He told the Rasulullah if you want to be successful, sit with the destitute and the poor and the needy and the orphans and the homeless. And this, this is what he did, alayhi salatu wasalam. So human connection is uh, amazing. I, I mean, I, I wanted to share a very you know, short story, which is about uh, the uh, Golden Gate Bridge. And uh, this is a very famous bridge in California not only because it's very beautiful, but also because this is a very attractive site for people to commit suicide. And this guy, he, he said, uh, that day I decided to jump, but I, I just wanted to give people, you know, another chance. He said, I, I, I just, uh, you know, decided for 20 minutes, I'm going to walk back and forth along the bridge. And if one human kept an eye contact with me or gave me a smile or say, how's your day? Or why are you on the bridge? Or whatever human connection, he said, I will not jump. And he said, for 20 minutes, everybody ignored me. Everybody's busy with their cell phones or their own business. And he jumped and he survived. But I mean, it can be very powerful if you, you know, smile or say salam or start a conversation with someone. You can not only you know, save their self-esteem. You can literally save their lives. SubhanAllah. Hence why it's sunnah to smile. can be a sadaqah. And it's just so, I mean, it's so beautiful. I mean, the deen and other religions, of course, and common sense, you know, good nature. It's in all of us. But it's just being, yani, trying your best to be muhsin. In any opportunity you can is really the essence of how to practically live up to what you're telling us here, right? Human connection, intimacy, validation, awareness, acknowledgement. I mean, we also have to remember as, as Muslims that Allah chose everyone who exists right now to be here, right? Yeah, and so, is something, I mean, subhanAllah, I'm glad you brought Ihsan on because uh, 
يعني it is the highest you know status in our deen but if you remember the story of prophet yusuf when he was in the bottom of the well basically he was muhsin when he was uh, you know in the prison he was a muhsin when he became the aziz he became a muhsin i mean when his brother they said innaka la anta yusuf he said ana yusuf hadha akhi qad manna allahu alayna innahu man yattaqi wa yasbir fa inna allaha la yudhi'u ajra almuhsinin he said that the reason i became this elevated in status because of uh, how beautiful my manners are and uh, he was not shaken by any test i mean uh, it was the test of women or test of uh, wealth or a test of you know being away from his mom and dad or having his brothers betray him so maqam um, al-ihsan is something that if we practice it even during the very difficult time because allah said khalaq al-mawt wa al-hayat liyabluwakum ayyukum ahsan amala we practice ihsan even when we grieve if we just uh, subhanallah examine our deen and follow the beautiful example of muhammad والسلام, we will be way way ahead now, why do you think the Prophet ﷺ, you know, going back to one of the references you used of, you know, be with the poor, the downtrodden. Why didn't he say be with the powerful or the wealthy or the leaders of the, you know, why that? How is that going to help in our human connection, spirituality, and perhaps it's a training ground for the ihsan you were talking about. Can you tell us more about that meaning and how we can take more value from that? There are many dynamics that uh, interplay here. For example, if you go only with the rich and the famous, most likely you will have a sense of competition. You want to be like them or you, you will not be satisfied. Uh, and Al-Qana'a, subhanAllah, something, you know, our deen will say, not only look for those who are above you in a materialistic, you know, sense, but also look at the people who are less than you uh, in a way. I mean, uh, uh, because subhanAllah, we don't know in the eye of Allah, maybe the person that we don't recognize coming to the masjid, he might have a very, very high status. I mean, There are people who are very famous on this earth, them in the high heaven, and vice versa. But also, subhanAllah, if you sit with the people who are struggling, you will have softness in your heart. One of the brothers, he said, I do lots of... You know, things that uh, I enjoy, like hiking and um, maybe traveling. and But I still have something missing in my heart. And I said, have you maybe volunteered with the refugees or going to the homeless shelters or going to children's hospital? And, and he said that he is going to try it. And subhanAllah, that brought softness to his heart. And we, we know every time we sit with people who are going through a rough time, but uh, still keep their faith, they are a source of inspiration for us so if you sit only with the people who talk about dunya you become attracted to dunya but when you see people who are very very happy and satisfied and have rida and qana'a even though they have nothing then alhamdulillah you start to have a, a sense of peace and calmness coming to your heart right and that's like part of the value or benefit you get as a person who's let's say not as disenfranchised but you're trying to support them but also there is of course the bigger picture which is without the poor the rich aren't tested with their wealth right mm-hmm. and without the uh, and the poor aren't tested with let's say their patience or even sharing the little that they do have with each other right um and so this is also part of it it's like everyone's going to have a distribution of talents provision resources and that's part of that test is will you give 
to those that Allah did not will to have as much as you? Right? Uh, will you go and teach and support those that Allah made this stuff come to you more easily? Or it's, you know, a, a talent that you have. Will you go share that with others that it doesn't come as a talent, etc.? So do you feel like that's part of the point here too? Absolutely. I mean, subhanAllah, the ulama, they had a debate about uh, which one is better, al-ghani, al-shakir, or al-faqir, al-sabr. They say that if somebody has lots of money and they are thankful and grateful and they spend it in the cause of Allah, are they better than somebody who has no money but they are very you know patient and they are grateful to allah for having nothing but maybe having us allah still in their heart so that dynamic absolutely plays into um, this relationship and we we see it uh, you know commonly and subhanallah I've been working with the refugee community since 2011 and being a, an asylum seeker myself and ex-refugee if you like um just that very, very humbling and uh, humanizing experience, even though it has lots of pain and heartbreak. And when we become, alhamdulillah, blessed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and we start to share, you know, our knowledge or our time or our talent, then that actually is very healing for us too. I mean, me sharing my stories and writing books is a way for me to uh, have catharsis and heal my own PTSD. So it's not only uh, altruism, it's also, you know, trying to make sense of very confusing world, if you like. They think uh, sitting with people who uh, are uh, less fortunate gives you lots, lots of uh, solace and uh, healing and meaning, even though it, you might not have the full picture of why people are suffering or why children are dying or why uh, we are losing people for shooting or why would somebody come inside the masjid and kill people while praying. I mean, still, we find some kind of uh, peace of mind when we, inshallah, sit down and try to do it as a community. Because uh, mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, trying to make sense of nonsense situation on your own can be very confusing. You might start to question the wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You might become angry with the religion or blame. lose your mind. Yeah, a lot of things can happen. A again, it's a, it's a, that, that's a evidence that we need each other because we're social creatures, we're creatures of bonding. It's about we're in this together. Right? Mm -hmm. Only Allah's a summit. You know, I always tell people this only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is a summit. He is the only one that's self sufficient and needs nothing, and everyone and everything needs Him. We're the opposite. We constantly need, and we constantly are interconnected and need everything and everyone around us. I mean, you think about it. We trust in so many processes and people on a daily basis, just going out of your house every day and coming home. You're trusting that people are going to pay attention when they're driving too, so they don't run you over, or, you know, there's infinite things, right? This idea here that, you know, what came up for me as you were sharing about your catharsis with the PTSD and the work, and I love that because as someone who has my own kind of hobbies with music and art as a catharsis for me, myself, um, I almost feel like the world, as you said, is very confusing unless we're not constructing powerful meaning throughout it, right, or through it. Uh, and that can sometimes be intellectual, it can be um, artistic, like you were giving the example of the child, like just drawing a picture says it all. It could save you hours of therapy, right? And the importance of having art or different ways of uh, therapeutic processes. Can you tell us more about the Untangled Project? I love the name and I love the project. You got to check it out. It's projectuntangled.org. Dr. Omar, tell us more about this uh, project. Yeah, subhanAllah, it started as an idea uh, in the middle of a war zone in Benghazi, Libya, in June of 2011. 
So we know the Arab Spring and the revolution in Libya started in February 2011. But the first few months, people were focused more on the physical needs. And, you know, everybody is uh, facing actual, you know, death threats. And so the psychosocial needs were delayed. And we know that's very unfortunate because many people, they continue to suffer in silence. And most of the dysfunction we see now is because of uh, the mental health consequences not only the physical wounds, but the invisible wounds and scars that people are still struggling with. And uh, when I came to the U.S. and work with refugees, I see this very same uh, themes of dysfunction. There is a uh, lots of family breakdown. There is a misunderstanding between generations, and there are uh, you know people repeating the trauma story. People are going from uh, you know, one dysfunction to another. Maybe self-medicating. Maybe uh, domestic violence. Maybe addiction. Whatever it is, there are five different components of Untangled. One is to give people education, because many, many people, they think they maybe are losing it or they are being crazy or we normalize their experience. We say what happened to you is abnormal. What what you are going through right now, um, your reactions are normal reaction to an abnormal situation. And we just give them explanation of what uh, the trauma means and What's the normal reactions to trauma? And, uh, you know, we go you through... You help them make meaning. Correct, yeah. Biologically, maybe there are hormones like norepinephrine and cortisol and other hormones that uh, can be very beneficial on the short run. But if you are going through very chronic trauma, these hormones can cause high blood pressure, high blood sugar. They can cause ulcer and they can have a very you know, dangerous and even fatal consequences. So we do uh, education through leaflets, the website, uh, seminars, workshops. Uh, we um, I write lots of books, as you know. So education is uh, something that I'm very big on. Alhamdulillah, we do it uh, on a monthly basis here in Portland. We meet as a community and we have different theme. So education, uh, we found out, you know, people, they, they receive it very well because it's not very threatening. And sometimes we use words that are benign. They are not necessarily, I don't invite people to a psychosocial healing workshop. I just give it very, you know, neutral and benign name, inviting name, like uh, behind closed doors or uh, emotional safety. I would say stress management in Islam. Or So education is uh, the first piece. The second one, of course, we, are, we cannot be a team of one. Uh, we train people. So there's lots of training that happens. So Every community that we visit, they will have their own team that's trained and they can carry this this work. And this is a you know very specific training about trauma, how to listen to the trauma story with compassion, but also how to take care of yourself in the process, how to have the cultural humility while you are doing that. So you don't come across as the arrogant, I know it all, I am the expert kind of attitude, which is very, very harmful that I see very commonly uh, with the traumatized population. We fly to Syria or to Yemen, and I, I want to dictate my manual anew because it worked in Oregon. That means it has to work in, you know, Aleppo or Aden or whatever. So subhanAllah, I mean, if we come with the attitude of uh, humility, especially towards the culture and the religion, uh, that's very, very helpful. And the, the third component, which has been the most successful one, uh, is the creation of safe spaces. So we provide safe spaces for the children, for the families, and we we meet once a month and uh, we provide food or potluck and people uh, mingle socially. And then we very gently introduce a topic, maybe 
that's difficult. Maybe that's facing the community. Maybe it's a taboo issue that uh, that children are dealing with. Or we try to bring, you know, the children with their parents and do lots of family bonding through these activities, because uh, most of the time we see each other as the enemy, even in a family context. Especially now, teenagers they are going through a rough time. They are. Uh, you know, learning the English language very very quickly. They are going to public schools. They are having the American identity, and their parents might become resentful. They don't want them to lose their you know identity from their home country. And there is no contradiction or conflict. So we just need to sit down and, and let parents and children know that uh, you can be proud Syrian American. There is nothing uh, wrong about that. Or you can be American Muslim, and there is no contradiction there. So Alhamdulillah, Safe Spaces has been very well attended. I, I would say even the um, issue of suicide we tackled under a workshop we called the 13 Reasons Why. What are the 13 reasons that uh, um, you know a child might uh, think about taking their own life and uh, why we can actually become the reasons for people not to think about suicide. So there are 13 reasons in our religion that we can stop people from thinking about uh, that is as the only exit. So it's not only psychology, it's the beautiful combination of using our deen and merging it with the psychology. And then we have a culturally specific clinic that's once a month. We have the Umma clinic here in Oregon, but there are many other culturally specific clinics throughout the country. So we see people once a month that they have a specific cultural and religious needs. And we are in the process of having mobile crisis team. So if these people cannot come to our clinic, we go to them and maybe establishing a hotline. So if somebody is calling, not necessarily calling 911 or calling the suicide prevention hotline, they, they can just call our hotline and we can respond to them in a way that uh, maybe brings them more comfort than talking to somebody who doesn't share their uh, cultural or you know um, religious experience. So that, that's another one. And uh, subhanAllah, one that I'm very heavily focused on right now is uh, uh, reconciliation. We know in many conflicts, there are people who fought for and against certain ideology. Um, right now, I mean, there are the Arab Spring countries that are going through this. There is a, maybe Syria will go through this very soon. Maybe our brothers from the Rohingya uh, community and uh, maybe when that war ends, inshallah, there might be reconciliation between them and the Burmese government. But also in our own backyards, there are people who, you know, white supremacy and people who claim the name of the religion of Islam and operate under very dark, very dark, you know, agenda like ISIS and other groups. But there are children who are confused in the middle. They can go to either of these, uh, you know, deviant groups because they feel that they belong there. Uh, these people also, they have their own trauma stories. Right. So at one point, when there is safety, when there is justice, when we have, uh, you know... Security, trust, predictability. Exactly. Eventually, maybe we will um, listen to each other with the humanity and find the common ground, inshallah. Yeah. And I know one of your books is on, you know, the psychological uh, explanation of why there is religious fundamentalism, extremism in groups like ISIS. So I want to save that for another show because that is a... A rich topic. Um, that's one of the books that Dr. Omar has written about. We'll have lists of those books in the description of the show. So how can people get involved with Project Untangled if they'd like to? Is it just like go donate on the website or is there other ways that people can support? 
Yeah, I mean, the best thing to do is uh, actually to believe in yourself and your, your loved ones and start a process of healing. SubhanAllah, I mean, sometimes we lose people um, very quickly and unpredictably, and then we go to their funerals and kiss them on the forehead and say, please forgive me now when it's too late. So I, I encourage anybody who is interested in family bonding to do it immediately, like don't even wait until the show is over. Do it right now. Reach out to your loved ones, not only through text or Facebook message, but actually if you can, meet with them face to face and ask for forgiveness, even if uh, you are the one who uh, not at fault, but still, I mean, uh, try your best to be and the best among you is the one who says salam first. People can reject you, and but between you and Allah, alhamdulillah, you tried your best to uh, you know, try to rebuild bridges because many of us are looking for that healing. The other person is looking for that healing too, most likely. And the, the other thing is to please establish safety. I mean, safety in our homes is something that's missing. There's lots of domestic violence and child abuse and there is a dysfunctional dynamics and there are people who are married for 25 years but they are basically roommates they live under a roof but they don't share anything else i want people to start bonding and paying attention and you know showing affection and eventually you know having a very loving relationship with their loved ones because you know we can have a smile and we can have an energy for everybody but the minute we come to our home we want to unwind and deflate and become grumpy and we don't have any time for the people who matter most. So I wanted people to, inshallah, believe in uh, the power of bonding and uh, they can do it through, alhamdulillah, lots of uh, activities. I mean, the, these activities are cheap or they are free of charge. Uh, every single city, every single state, every country have many venues for people to sit down and do activities together as a family. We call it a family time or quality time. If you can make it 30 minutes a day, maybe 45 minutes, maybe one hour, if, uh, if, if you can. Technology-free, face-to-face, eye-to-eye, heart-to-heart conversation with your loved ones. So that will start a journey of healing and building bridges and uh, opening channels of communication. So that's the most uh, important call to action, I would say. I would like to tell people. Jazakallah khair, akramakumullah. And uh, Dr. Omar, thank you so much for your time. And inshallah, we'll have you on again soon. Akramakumullah and blessings to you and your family and all that you do. You too. Jazakallah khair, brother Kareem. It's a pleasure and honor. May Allah bless you. Um, thanks for tuning in to the Coffee with Kareem podcast. Don't forget to leave us a lovely review on iTunes and sponsor the show today at patreon.com. Links are in every description of every show. 